If you have your Bibles, and I hope and I trust that you do, turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It is our spring semester small group kickoff. And so we're going to take just one week off from our Mark study, our study in that amazing gospel that we've been enjoying so much. We're going to take just one Sunday off so that we can just kind of think through why we are doing what we are doing this next semester in our small groups. We're going to be studying the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at different passages in the Old Testament about growing our love for the Lord, about what it looks like to repent, what it looks like to turn from sin and to trust in God. We're going to go through many different narratives. It's going to be an amazing time in the Word together. And so in thinking through that, in thinking through turning from sin, turning to trust in the Savior, that whole process of the struggle with sin just kind of made me think, let's take a step back and let's just ask, we're a month into 2024, how has this year been for you? Maybe you set some New Year's resolutions and you thought, you know, I'm going to try and to accomplish some um, large things in ministry for the Lord. I want to do things in discipling others in evangelism and counseling. I want to grow my affections for Jesus and to help others do the same. And maybe, as we began this year, you had great aspirations of following the Lord and of ministering to others. And maybe something has tripped you up. Something's distracted you. Something's gotten you off the path where you're thinking, you know what, maybe I can't. Maybe, maybe it's something you're thinking. Maybe it's something you're doing. Maybe it's your emotions, your feelings. There's something that you look back on and you think, you know what, I really had good goals in pursuing the Lord, but I don't know about now. Maybe it's not this last year. Maybe it's a decade ago. Have you ever felt that deep sense that I am so messed up, I don't think God can use me? So much guilt, so much shame, so many moments of failure that you just don't even know if you could possibly be useful and effective in ministering the gospel to others, in shepherding others, in discipling others, in counseling others. If you feel like you have failed over and over again, these words from Jesus to Peter are for you. And I want us all to eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and Peter and hear Jesus' answer to that question. Can God use me? Is there any way he can use me? Can I be effective in ministering the gospel to others and discipling others and helping others and shepherding others? Jesus is going to give us an answer. One of the things that I love about reading through the Bible on a regular basis, I just started 2024 reading through a new Bible reading plan, finished Genesis and Exodus. One of the reasons why I love reading through the Bible is you are reminded constantly of the failures of some of the most heroic people in the scriptures. You look at Noah. That guy is amazing. God says, I'm going to send a flood with rain and you need to build an ark. No one knew what rain was back then. It hadn't occurred. And Noah goes, I don't know what it is you're talking about, but I trust you and I'll obey. Amazing. And then the very next episode, he gets drunk. Abraham, 
God tells him, I want you to go to a land, make a journey, and I'm not even going to tell you where that land is or what that land is for yet. Just trust me. And Abraham says, sure, I trust you. He obeys by faith. And then once he gets there, he starts lying, habitually lying about his wife. You have Moses, incredible man of God, leads the people of God. And yet he gets so impatient and so hot-tempered, striking the rock, that God says, you're not even allowed into the promised land. The Bible is replete with example after example of people, many of whom are in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, who fail over and over and over again, reminding us that there is only one true hero in the scriptures, and that's our Savior. And then there's Peter. Peter's failures are notorious. Remember, he's in the boat in the middle of the storm. Jesus walks on the water, and Peter says, If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you. And he steps out onto the waves, and he starts walking. Amazing, incredible faith, but then he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He becomes fearful, doubtful, scared, and he sinks. Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is such a profound answer that Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but my heavenly father has shown that to you. You couldn't even know that if it weren't for my heavenly father opening your eyes to see that reality. And then in the very next sentence, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Look at this guy. Here's a guy who says, you are God and you are wrong. That's how foolish this man is. And then the upper room. All the disciples sitting around the upper room. Jesus says, all of you will fall away. And Peter says, they all will, but not me. I will not fall away. My love for you is greater than their love for you. And even though they might fall away, I will not. So here's Peter's resume. Occasionally he speaks for the devil. He disagrees with the son of God and occasionally rebukes him. And he denies knowing Jesus three times. Can the gospel save Peter? Of course. But the question for us this morning is, can the gospel so fit Peter for useful ministry that it doesn't just save, but sanctifies and allows him to participate in faithful gospel ministry with others? And the answer is yes. The gospel delivers defective disciples from destruction and then also prepares them for a lifetime of fruitful ministry. So if you want to be an effective ambassador of Jesus Christ, you want to be used mightily under his strength and by his power, then let's listen as Jesus tells Peter the two things that you need in order to follow him and help others follow as well. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Let's read this together. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus, Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Let's ask his blessing on our time this morning as we give careful attention to it. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to open your word, to hear you speak to us from your word. We thank you that you have spoken clearly and that we can understand you clearly. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law that we would see and perceive and not be like the Pharisees who, while seeing, they don't perceive. Give us humility and teachability to receive your word. We are desperate. We are needy beggars. And so we come before you, even as Peter would have come before you way back then, to listen to the words that you would say. And we ask that you would, just like you did with Peter, restore us through the gospel and fit us for useful ministry. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. These verses give us two realities that are necessary for faithful discipleship. Two realities necessary for faithful discipleship. If you want to be an effective minister of Christ, if you want to help others follow Jesus, then you need two things. Number one, you need affection for Jesus. Number one, affection for Jesus. This is verses 15 through 17. The foundation of everything you do as a disciple of Christ is not a doing but rather a devotion. It starts with an affection for Christ. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast. They'd finished breakfast. You remember the scene earlier in the chapter? Uh, the Lord had told the disciples to go to Galilee, to the mountain in Galilee, and wait for him there, where he would give them the great commission. And so they went from the upper room, they went to Galilee, and while they are waiting in Galilee, the disciples decide, you know what, let's just go fishing. I think that there might have been a sense in Peter's mind specifically that he knew, I, I don't do well as a disciple. I clearly failed as a disciple. I'm not good at following Jesus. I denied knowing him three times. And so let me go back to what I'm good at. This is natural to me. I'm good at this. So let me go back to my old job. 
And I love, as he goes back to his old job, he can't even do that. He's failing at that. They don't bring in any fish. And then someone shows up on the shore and says, have you caught any fish? No? Well, cast your net to the right-hand side of the boat. And I'm sure somebody in that boat is thinking, from here to here, that's not going to make a difference. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And maybe somebody in the boat said, you, know, remember, you remember Jesus did that for us? In Luke chapter 5, Jesus did that for us? That sounds very similar to something Jesus would do. Let's do it. And so they do it, and they throw the nets over, and they bring in, John tells us, 153 fish. And Peter says, it's the Lord. Jumps out of the boat, swims to shore. And even on the dry land, on shore, I love that Peter already sees a breakfast laid out. Fish on the fire. It's like Jesus is saying, I don't even need the fish that you just caught. I don't need your efforts. I don't need your doing. I already have it. Verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw the charcoal fire already laid out and fish placed on it and bread. This is the Lord. And the Lord is setting Peter up for something magnificently brutal. I wonder if you caught it in verse 9. There's a clue in verse 9 that Jesus is setting Peter up. Has your memory ever been awakened by a distinct smell? Freshly cut grass always takes me back to Little League Baseball. There's a specific hand sanitizer that when I smell it, it takes me right back to being in the hospital at Children's Hospital with Tyler when he was having open heart surgery. It takes me right back. There's a specific smell. I don't know if you have a smell like that where you smell something that just takes you right back. Charcoal fires are like that. They have a distinct smell. And in verse 9, Jesus has purposely set out a charcoal fire. Why? Do you remember the last time Peter was standing around a charcoal fire? Go back to John 18, verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing warming himself. I think he gets onto the shore, he smells that scent of the charcoal fire, and it takes him right back to the worst night of his life. He wants to forget this, this night. He doesn't ever want to remember this night ever again, and that smell takes him right back. Jesus is spotlighting his specific failure. He's reminding him, Peter, do you remember that night? And I think Peter, maybe taken aback, maybe struggling even as they're eating breakfast, he's just thinking about that night. And in that context, verse 15, once they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? There's been a lot of ink spilled on what that word these is referring to. Maybe Jesus is pointing to the fish do you love me more than these or the nets or the boats? Do you love me more than your job, more than your occupation? That could be. Maybe he's pointing to the disciples. Do you love me more than you love hanging out with them? Do you love me more than you love your fellowship with them? Could be. 
But I actually think he's saying, do you love me more than these disciples love me? I think he's saying that because, again, he's taking Peter back to that fateful evening. And what happened that evening? In the upper room, Peter had said, all will fall away, but I will not. Why? Because I love you more than these. And so Jesus here says, do you love me more than these disciples? What's Peter's answer? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but notice what he has dropped. He doesn't say I love you more than these because he can't say that. All of them fled away. In fact, all of them fled, but not all of them denied knowing Jesus. That's just on Peter. There's no way he can say I love you more than these because he knows he doesn't. Jesus is being mercifully brutal. This question is designed to get to the center of Peter's heart, and it does. You can hear it in his response. He has learned his lesson. He's not comparing himself to the other disciples. In fact, Peter responds with such humility that he doesn't even use the same word for love that Jesus had used. Jesus says, do you agape me? That's the Greek word for love that is uh, the highest form of love. It's a covenant-keeping love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that no matter what happens, I will always love you. Clearly, Peter doesn't have that love, so he doesn't respond with I agape you. He responds with I phileo you, a brotherly affection, a friendship. I have a deep affection for you as a friend, but Peter says, I can't say that I agape you. Uh, Bishop Lightfoot was the first one a couple hundred years ago to point out the stark contrast between agape and phileo. And I do think that there's an aspect of that that's true. I don't want to make too much of it because I think the greater emphasis, the main emphasis in this text is not necessarily what, you, what words are used, though that's important. It's the number of times that they're used. Drop down to verse 17. Peter is grieved because Jesus said a third time, do you love me? So Peter is more concerned about the number of times because Jesus is saying one question for every denial that Peter made. Peter is grieved. He's humbled. A shattering of his self-sufficiency has occurred. And that is the only kind of person Jesus uses. The only people that Jesus uses are the people that are shattered by their sinfulness. If you think I have something to offer somebody because I'm pretty good, I'm a decent individual, I'm a good person, God won't use you. He has to shatter you and get you to a place where you see that you are the worst sinner. I love the way one pastor says it. At the end of the day, gospel ministry is not about your powerful gifts your superior commitment, your academic achievements. It is a demeanor of life which is impacted by the gospel and illustrates the gospel as you bleed a humility that is produced by the gospel. A humility that makes crystal clear to everyone around you that you know that everything that you are is owing to the grace of Jesus and nothing else. Self-reliance and discipleship and ministry is deadly because it's antithetical to the very gospel that you are declaring. Just think about it. If you say, yeah, Jesus helped me, but I'm kind of a good person, and so he saved me in some way, shape, or form, but I'm really not that bad, and then you turn around and you tell others, you need the gospel, you need salvation, that's antithetical. 
You cannot be preoccupied by the sufficiency of Jesus and simultaneously enamored by the powers of your own abilities. They nullify each other. Peter knows what A.W. Tozer wrote when he said, quote, it is highly unlikely that God can use a man greatly until he has first hurt him deeply. Charles Spurgeon says, whenever God means to make a man great and use him greatly, he always breaks him into pieces first. That's what's happening to Peter. And so he says, maybe even through tears, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what's Jesus' response? What's his response? End of verse 15. Tend my lambs. That's it. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then get to work. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Notice there's no pointing out, do you really love me? Do you promise to never do that again? Do you know how bad you actually messed up? No. It's, Peter, do you love me? Now, the answer is yes, so go get to work. Go tend my sheep, my sheep. They are his sheep. The church is Jesus's church, not our church. Verse 16, a second time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John. And I love that he's using the name Simon. That's Simon's original name. That's his old name. Jesus gave him the nickname of Peter. And so it seems in the Gospels that whenever Jesus calls him Peter, he's saying, act like your new self. You're acting like a leader. I want you to grow in your leadership and your love for others. And then whenever he says Simon, whenever he calls him Simon, he's telling him, you're acting like your old self. And so I think that this, when Jesus says Simon, I think that would have landed in Peter's mind and his heart. The way that, remember when your parents used to call you by your full name? That was always a bad thing, right? My parents said, hey, Patrick, can you come here? I'm okay. But if they say, Patrick, Stephen, Carmichael, get in here. I know I'm in deep trouble, right? I think that's what's happening here. He knows that Jesus is highlighting his failures. He says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. End of verse 16. And he says to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Peter's grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I love that. His self-reliance is gone. Peter's self-reliance is gone. How do we know it? Because when asked that third time, if he loves Jesus, He just pleads the omniscience of Jesus. He does not say, of course I love you, look at my life. Of course I love you, look at what I've done. No, it's in spite of what I've done that I'm telling you that I love you. So he's saying, don't look at my actions. Don't look at what I've done. Look deep inside to my heart and know that I love you. Jesus, I love you, but you, he pleads the omniscience of Christ. You know this, you have to see inside. I've given you every reason to doubt that I love you by the way that I've lived my life. And Jesus says again, tend my sheep. End of verse 17. Tend my sheep, get to work. Tend my sheep. I love that because there isn't this sense of, do you promise to always love me? Did you love me back then? Will you love me in the future? No. In fact, Peter's going to kind of mess up in the very next paragraph when he fixes his eyes on John. And then he's going to really mess up in the book of Galatians, right? And Paul's going to have to call him out in Galatians for doing something that is antithetical to the gospel. But Peter, 
once asked by Jesus, do you love me? And he responds, yes, I do. Peter is commissioned for ministry. And he's commissioned because he knows that he's not better than those around him, but worse. There's nothing in his love for Jesus that merits boasting. His prideful strength had been weakened. And now and only now is he ready to go and strengthen other people. Of the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it, quote, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin is of, the, of necessity the worst, the most grievous, and the most reprehensible. Brotherly love will find any number of extenuations for the sins of others, only for my sin there is no apology whatsoever. Therefore, my sin is the worst, and he who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. So can I ask you, have you sunk all the way down to those depths of humility? Do you look at others, even in this church family, and think, I'm better than they, than they are. I'm doing better than they're doing. If so, we are just like the Pharisee in the book of Luke who says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that person. Thank you that I'm not as bad as they are. No, we need to be like Peter, shattered in our sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency so that we say, God, how could you have mercy on me? How could you love me? This is unbelievable love. If you're a self-conscious sinner, you can deal lovingly with other sinners, right? You can love them with gospel love because you know I'm nothing special and so I can just share humbly the love of Christ. You know what failure means. But if you are self-righteous, you can be a brutal weapon in the hands of the enemy. Self-righteous people are brutal people. And so that's why Jesus says, are you being self-righteous, Peter? And when Peter answers, you, you know all things. You know my love in here because I haven't given you evidence of it. I don't love you more than these disciples. When he has shown that sense of a shattering of his soul, Jesus says, go minister. Go minister. Kent Hughes says, failure creates the poverty of spirit that in turn makes us fit receptacles for the blessings of the kingdom of God. Failure engenders humility. Humility dethrones self-reliance. And all we can do is surrender ourselves completely to the adequacy of Jesus Christ. And then when he accomplishes great things using us, there is no competition for glory. If you do anything great in the kingdom of God, there's no competition for glory because he alone did that work through you. So do you love Jesus? Notice, Jesus says, do you love me? And when Peter says yes, he says, feed my sheep. Because if you truly love Jesus, then you will naturally love others. That's the greatest commandment, right? Love God, love people. And if you love Jesus the way that he deserves to be loved, the way that he should be loved, then that love is going to naturally flow through you to others. Calvin says, no man will steadily persevere in the discharge of his ministry unless love for Christ reigns in his heart. So, brothers and sisters, do you love Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you wonder 
why is he worthy of that kind of love? Is he really worthy of all of my affections? Why is he so lovely? Why should I love him that much? I would just simply say, because of who he is and because of what he has done. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is God, very God. He is God who made us, who created us, who told us how life operates best, who gave us the laws to bless us, to encourage us. And then we look at our creator and we say, I don't want it. Every time we sin, we are just saying to God, I could do a better job being God than you. Your laws are awful and my laws would be better. Sin, I love the definition that R.C. Sproul used to use. Sin is cosmic treason. Every time we sin, we are saying, God, I wish you were dead and I wish I was in your place as king of the universe. That's what we have done in our sinfulness. And in our sinfulness, God would be just, fair, righteous, holy, to say you've made your choice to step back and to let all of us bear the righteous penalty of our sin. What does our sin deserve? Our sin deserves death. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of our sin is death. We have sinned against our creator and the penalty of that sin is judgment in the next life for all eternity in hell. And God would have been fair to just say, you made your choice. You you chose sin. You've spurned me. And therefore, I'm not stepping in. And then all humanity would go to hell. But he loves you. He loves you so much that he said, I am going to start a rescue mission that will go into humanity and pull people and plead with them to come to me and make a provision so that they would be able to be saved and not go to hell. So God the Father sends Jesus, the Son, fully God, becoming fully human. Jesus lives in our Place. He lives our lives before us. He 100% perfectly human, 100% perfectly God. He lives a holy life, never sinning and in perfect obedience. He goes to the cross. And at the cross, God the Father takes the punishment that we deserve and puts it on Jesus. He treats Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives so that God the Father could take Jesus's perfection, his sinlessness, and put it into our account and then treat us as if we had lived his perfect life. Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried, he rises from the dead, and he says to all, if you would cling to me by faith, trust in me. There's no work you have to do. There's nothing you could ever do to earn salvation. Uh, Otherwise, Jesus would not have been killed on a cross. Remember, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there was another way to be saved, that would have happened and Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. But Jesus goes to the cross because there is no other way to be saved but by trusting in his finished work on the cross, his work in our place. And so for all who would cling to him by faith, loving him, 
treasuring him, if you understand the love that he has for you, that he did that for you because of his love for you, if you understand that love, you will not help yourself. You couldn't be able to help yourself to love him back. That's what 1 John 4, 19 says. We love him because he first loved us. So do you love him? Not do you know about him, but do you love him? We say a lot at our church, being a believer is not about knowing facts or even believing those facts are true. If you have those two things, if you know facts about Jesus and you believe that those facts are true, you have the qualifications to be a demon, right? James 2.19, the demons believe and they tremble, they shudder, they're angry about it. If you know facts that are true about Jesus and you believe that they're true, that qualifies you for demonic faith. But what sets apart saving faith from demonic faith? The demons know facts about Jesus. They believe that those facts are true and they hate that they're true. They wish they could change them because they hate that they're true. They hate that Jesus is the only way. They hate that their sin deserves punishment. They hate that. But for somebody who says, I know facts about Jesus, I believe that they're true, and I love that they're true. I treasure Christ who died in my place, who lived in my place, who lives for me and pleads for me. Even now, the person who sees that will treasure Christ and that treasuring of Christ, clinging in by faith alone, that is salvation. So have you gazed at the glory of Christ and the love of Christ and have you, Have you loved him with that kind of a love? If you're here this morning and you would say, I get it intellectually, I understand, but I don't really know if I feel that depth of love for him and I want to grow that love. If you're here this morning and you want to grow in your love, first of all, I would love to talk with you and many people around you would love to talk with you after this uh, service. But before we talk with you, Talk to God, pray and ask God to grow in your heart a love for him. Because Romans chapter five, verse five says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So pray, ask God, give me a love for you. Open my eyes to see you. I want to love you this way. If you understand the gospel, you know that he, Jesus knows you perfectly. And he loves you perfectly. The gospel is being fully known and fully loved. And he wants you. He loves you. He died for you. He desires for you to turn. And you might say with Peter, I don't know. There's a lot of guilt that I have. And he would say this morning, there's more grace in him than guilt in you. You might say, you don't understand my life of sin I would say, I don't, I don't know it fully. God does. He's omniscient. And he's better at saving than you are at sinning. So run to him. Love him. Trust him. Peter is given a lesson so clearly by Jesus that if you want to minister faithfully and effectively, if you want to shepherd others and disciple others, if you want to love them with gospel love, number one, you must love Jesus. Affection for Jesus. Number two, the second reality That is necessary. You must have allegiance to Jesus. Allegiance to Jesus. So number one, affection for Jesus. Number two, allegiance to Jesus. This is verses 18 through 25. Jesus then says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. 
It's a, a proverb speaking of the freedom that you have. You could do whatever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. That word for gird, there's a play on words there because that word can also be translated as fasten. But either way, this verse is very enigmatic. What does it mean? When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you or fasten you and bring you where you don't wish to go. I just love when the Bible, as you're asking questions of the text, I love when the Bible answers it in the very next verse. Verse 19. If you're wondering, what does verse 18 mean? Verse 19 answers. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Jesus is saying, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, but when you're older, somebody's going to fasten your hands to a crossbeam. You will be crucified, Peter. Now, how would that make you feel if you're Peter? You just saw your savior brutally murdered on a cross. You've lived in Roman-occupied Israel all your life. You've seen countless crucifixions. You know this is the worst of the worst way to die for the worst of the worst criminals. And you know this is a terrifying prospect. So I think when Jesus says, you will be crucified, there's got to be a sense where Peter is terrified. I don't want to go through that. It's a worse death. But I think deeper than terror, I think Peter's heart would have soared hearing these words. Why? Because in essence, what Jesus is saying is, you will get another opportunity to deny me and live, but this time, you're going to obey me, and it's going to cost you your life. What Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're going to make it. Your faith will not fail. Remember, that's what Jesus had prayed for Peter. I am praying for you, and your faith will not fail. This is what Romans 8 says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you love him and you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is what Jude verse 1 says, that his people are called and kept by the power of God. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5 says, um, that we who are being sanctified are, are sanctified by God. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. This is Philippians 1, 6. He who began the good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to make it. Just weeks earlier, Peter had said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said, no, you won't. Now, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to follow me to death. And so imagine Peter waking up every single day wondering, is this going to be it? Is this the last day? Maybe rubbing shoulders with a Roman guard and wondering, is this the guy that's going to take me in? I think that's why there's some sense of urgency. If I know that that is my end, then I better get to discipling others now. And Jesus says, Verse 19, when he had spoken this, follow me. That's the allegiance. You follow me. You love me, affection for Christ, so follow me. Follow me. That's a person and a path. Me, follow me, follow Jesus, and it's a path. Follow. Go after him. And the very next verse, Peter gets caught up with following somebody else, wondering about somebody else. Peter turns to uh, John, he talks to Jesus and says, Jesus, what about that guy? You told me how I'm going to die. What about him? I love this because 
Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And the author of Hebrews tells us we should listen to them, but we should look to Christ. Fix our eyes on Christ. Listen to the witnesses, but fix your eyes on Christ. Don't fix your eyes on the witnesses. Here, Peter is fixing his eyes on the witnesses. He's fixing his eyes on John. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. What's that to you? You, end of verse 22, you follow me. You follow me. There was a tradition because of that statement that John would live forever. That's not true. John's even telling us that's not true. That's why verse 24 says, I'm the disciple testifying to these things. I'm testifying to the truthfulness of all that I've written in this gospel. And then he says, verse 25, there are many other things written which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Even the world itself would not contain the books. That's not that all of the books in the world right now couldn't contain it. That's if the entire world were filled with books, they still couldn't contain it. Some people tell me, they ask, do you think that heaven will be boring? Do you think that eternal life will be boring? I say, number one, no, because Jesus is there. Psalm 16, in your presence, there's the fullness of joy at, right, at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Of course it won't be boring. We get Jesus. But secondly, from this verse, it won't be boring because we're going to be learning so much of what Jesus did that's not recorded for us in the scriptures. But Jesus tells Peter, follow me. If you want to follow after Christ and have effective ministry in this church family with those around you, you need, number one, affection for Jesus and number two, allegiance to Jesus. So do you love him? Not have you loved him, not... Will you love him, but do you love him now? And will you obey him now? He wants your love and your life. He wants your affection and your allegiance. And if you love him, that changes everything in your life. Do you want to be a better husband? Love Jesus with all of your heart and you will be a better husband. Do you want to be a better boss or a better employee? Love Jesus and you will naturally become a better boss or a better employee. Do you want to be a better father? A better mother? Love Jesus more than anything this world has to offer. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we end our time this morning. Did Peter understand the lesson that Jesus was teaching him? Did he get it? The answers are resounding yes, not only with his life and not only with the teaching that we see in the book of Acts, but also with his letters. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Do you love me? Jesus asked Peter that question three times, and he's asking you this morning the exact same question. Do you love me? 
Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray now as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, we would reflect on that question, do you love me? And maybe we, like Peter, would say, I have struggled in the past, and I know I'm going to mess up in the future, but in this moment, with everything that is possible within me, I love you. I want to follow you. I want you because you first loved me. So, Father, confirm these truths to our hearts, even as we sing. May we love you for who you are and for what you've done because you first loved us. And grow in us a deeper affection for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.